are listening to the State Street Podcast. For more information about State Street Community Church, visit us online at statestreet.tv. So good to have you with us in person and online. We are uh, picking up more people as we go. Uh, we, this is our second week back in person, but uh, we, we have, I think, between both services, more here this uh, weekend than we did last week. And I'm sure next weekend will be even different as we start our children's ministry back at 1030 next week. So if you are watching this uh, or listening to the podcast later this week and you are kind of wanting to get back to church, but you're waiting for our children's ministry to kick back. Next week, 1030, uh, come to State Street, and we will have all of uh, our elementary and toddler and preschool classes going. And as we kind of continue that on, we'll get to the 830 hour as well as we get more volunteers and, and pick that back up. But we do want to offer at least one service on the weekend available to our parents and families that have kids. So you can get back as well, because we do miss seeing you as well. But I'm, I'm glad you're here. In whatever way um, and, and whatever brought you here, I am glad you're here. It's been a hard year, a hard month, maybe a hard week for you, um, but you're here. And we're worshiping together, we're singing together, we're, we're joining our hearts um, to, to reflect the love of Christ uh, together. Now, it is Lent, and if you grew up in a, uh, maybe a more liturgical environment, you know that Lent is the season, the 40 days, not counting Sundays, before Easter. And they start at Ash Wednesday, and it goes through. And essentially all it is is it's not trying to be, you know, uh, pharisaical or anything. It's not saying you have to follow this. What it is is Easter's a big holiday for us, right? We have Christmas and we have Easter, and those are the big, uh, you know, major um, national-influenced even holidays that the church celebrates. Um, lots of other ones, but those are the two main ones. And at Easter, we reflect on not only the... Um, crucifixion and death of Jesus, but most importantly to our faith, the resurrection of Christ. And so, because for us, new things come back alive, or dead things can come back alive again, right? So, this idea that people um, that, that are, are struggling and people who are on the outside can be made well again. Those who have addictions can be made well again. Those who um, are pushed to the side because of society can be made well again through Christ. And so, for us, Lent is a big time. It's a big season, and we want to rightly reflect and repent and reorient our lives uh, to receive the goodness of Christ here. So our prayer today is going to be a Lenten prayer. And so it's a prayer for open hearts and minds that we can learn to listen in this season for God, listen to where our heart is going, listen to where we've been, so that hopefully we can point forward to a more hopeful direction because I don't know about you, the last year's been hard, and I need more hope, and I, I, need, I don't need every bit of life solved. I don't need uh, to know that everything's fine today. I just want to know it's going to be there. I, know, I just want to know that it's going to get better sometimes. And so, and until it does, we pray give God, that God gives us our daily bread to get through it. So um, will you pray with me the Lord's Prayer, wherever you're at, whether it's online or here in person, let us bow our hearts and bow our heads and pray to God. Dear Father, so often we come to you with lists and demands, like our tornado, we spew them out as commands, 
to the next task we move on with our day. Completely missing what you might have to say. The noise of the world clogs our ears and clouds our minds with fogs and fears. We need you to clear our senses during this Lenten season. Give us hearts in tune with Christ. May we ever be eager to hear your voice. May listening continually be our choice. Amen. So if I was to ask you, um, what is the problem with the world today? Um, and you were going to write it, or you were going to tell me. I'm, I'd be interested to hear what you think, right? Um, what is the problem with the world? Is it the politics? Is it the um, income inequality? Is it uh, racial injustices? Is it that uh, the pandemic happened and it's left people economically and medically you know, in chaos? Uh, is it that uh, there's too much division right now? Is it that you know, people you know, say one thing and do another thing? I'd be interested to hear that. What is the problem? What is wrong with the world today? Now, back in the mid-1900s, when the world was in chaos because of World War II, a journalist in, in uh, Great Britain asked this question of the various thought leaders of the time, and they were going to do a, an article, which sounds like a fascinating article, might I add, about what is the problem with the world based on, or according to, rather, these thought leaders, theologians, philosoph uh, philosophers, medical doctors, uh, authors, these kind of things. And so they sent out this question, and one of the people that received this question was a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Chesterton is a, or was rather, a Roman Catholic uh, theologian and, and remarkable writer of uh, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, man. But I love what G.K. Chesterton did when he responded to this. Because oftentimes when we say, what's wrong with the world, it's typically everyone else but us. Right? What's wrong with the world? Well, you are, not me. But G.K. Chesterton kind of turns that around and says, dear sir, so replying to this question, dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Now, G.K. Chesterton wasn't, for all I know, or what we've received, I mean, you never know anymore, right? I'm always waiting on the, like, uh, uh, documentary on Mr. Rogers and everything I believe about Mr. Rogers is going to come down crumbling because, you know, he, you know, secretly was Dexter come alive. Um, but, uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton, for all intents and purposes, was a, a decent man, right? So he was certainly not Hitler. But dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World, I am. I am what's wrong with the world, yours truly. And there's a lot to unpack there, and G.K. Chesterton does unpack some of this in a book. But essentially what G.K. Chesterton wants to do is get away from this idea that everyone else or everything else is the problem. Here's, here's the tension we live in today, okay? There's lots of issues, and uh, I can tell you about issues that we're trying to, to help, uh, food insecurity, poverty, loneliness, these kind of things at the PAC Center, our gardens, um, but there's other issues, right? Last year, there were um, just, just a ton of, uh, let's say, protests for racial injustice. There were um, uh, just different uh, movements for 
um, medical equality because of COVID and things like this. Uh, there's people that are talking about who should get vaccinated, who shouldn't, and people have strong opinions on this, and it's fine to have well-informed and, and uh, you know, opinions on these matters. But what G.K. Chesterton is doing, I think, here, in this just little kind of almost pithy quote, is reminding us that as people of faith, we do point out those things, but really, ultimately, the one thing that we can control and do is to look within our hearts and to say, where are we participating in systems and where are we perpetuating ideas that are contributing to all the problems of the world? The problem is, is me. Me. When, when there's issues that need people to care, I don't care enough. When there's people that have wronged me, I don't forgive them. When, when, when I see that somebody is in need, I don't give to them. So we can talk about all the grandiose problems in the Middle East or, or in Asia or in America or in South America. We can talk about climate change. We can talk about all of these things. But really what it comes down to is what's wrong with the world is me. I am. We've talked about this before many times because I, I think it's so true to remind ourselves Faith best practiced is one that looks in the mirror and, and sees a reflection back and looks in and, and does the, the hard heart work of, of transformation and, and, and sacrifice and, and giving over of yourself to others, of being generous and loving and kind, rather than just pointing fingers at other people. Too many times in faith I've seen people point fingers while ignoring the own log in their own eye. And then people hear that, and they see it, and they, they, they experience it, and they say, well, who are you? Dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. See, our faith, like anything, right, can become mundane and unchallenged. I remember uh, when I went to uh, China for four months, and uh, love, I love Chinese food. I, I, I love my time in China. Beijing was just an amazing, formative experience. But there were certain foods that I had regularly here that I didn't have over there that before I left, I would not tell you, oh, this is like my favorite food. But when I got back, I could not wait to have Velveeta shells and cheese. Right? It wasn't anything fancy. But I couldn't get it over there, right? And, and so because I couldn't get it, I wanted it. Now, when I was over here, I didn't think anything of it, because if I wanted it, I'd just go to the store and get it, and I'd make it, and it was easy. But our faith can become mundane and unchallenged. We can kind of go through the motions and not realize that, you know, we have opportunities. We have uh, these privileges in front of us to participate, to, to engage. We get comfortable. Sometimes I get lazy. It's like, um, I don't know if you've ever done this. My neighbor Kathy, who's over here, has seen me do this. Um, on hot days, sometimes I'll mow my lawn, and I'll do part of it, and then I'll go inside, and I'll take a break. Um, and I'll, I'll go inside for a little while, and I'll sit in my recliner. I've got to have something cold to drink. You know, the air conditioning feels nice. I'm going to put my legs up on my recliner just for a few minutes while I relax. I'm going to close my eyes just for a minute. And then two hours later, 
after I've woken up from my wonderful nap, I have no motivation to want to go back and finish my yard, right? None. Because I interrupted my life. I got complacent. If I would have probably finished it and just done the hard work of doing another 25 minutes of lawn mowing, I could have finished it. But now I just don't want to. We get mundane, right? Some of us have had seasons of faith where we were excited. We were hungry. We wanted more faith. Or we wanted to engage in something spiritual and mysterious in this world. We resonated and connected to seeing the image of God in other people and doing works of love and justice. And became mundane. This was, I think, the hard thing for many of us during COVID-19 is when our rhythm got interrupted, coming to church, maybe going to a small group, being around people. We didn't know what to do anymore. Because everything about our faith was, was about the rhythm that we lived, and we didn't know how to engage further in other things outside of that one rhythm. And if that's the case, our faith can become mundane and unchallenged. Last year was a challenging year for anybody's faith. Lent, as we're in right now, Lent is often described as a time of preparation and an opportunity to go deeper with God. And it's a time that that starts with reflecting with our own mortality that we start on Ash Wednesday. We put ashes on our forehead. You've maybe seen this or you've been here to an Ash Wednesday service. And it seems odd, right? You've got ashes on your forehead, but it's to reflect that from dust we come and to dust we return. We are reflecting on our own mortality. Are we living in the ways that we want to live? Are we uh, participating in systems of death over life? These kind of things. Are we making the choices that we think are the wisest? And it goes all the way to Easter. We're in a series called The Heart Matters. And not just matters to your body. It does obviously matter, like, uh, medically. Um, but, you know, our motivations matter. Our desires matter. Our, our um, ability to, to, to extend grace matters. What we receive into our heart matters. What we reflect back into the world matters. Not just our actions, not just our words. All of it matters. So in this season of Lent in this series, we're kind of looking at our unconscious motivations and some of uh, the, the desires that we have and asking where do these desires come from. Now, I am an old millennial. Um, I'm like a grandfather of the millennial generation. I graduated in the year 2000, um, so it puts me at like, you know, the Milford Brimley of the millennials. I've, I've, I'm, unlike other millennials, you know, I have to take Metamucil. But I'm not too old enough to, you know, not understand that the greatest era of music was in the 90s. So um, the most formative 10 years of music, rather. Um, so there's things about every generation that we write. And, and I, there, there are things about generational studies I love. I, I don't love when they become binary and say, OK, you're a member of this generation, so this is who you are. We ought not to do that. I do love, though, uh, my sister-in-law is a, a sociologist. She has her PhD. I do love sociology. I love compartmentalizing sometimes and looking for patterns. I love looking for, you know, these people come from this part of the country or this part of the city and they've got these behaviors and, and studying these kind of things, what causes those kind of behaviors. In generation studies, typically, you know, again, when you're all influenced by very similar things, you tend to, um, you know, 9-11 influenced a whole generation, right? And so based on that event happening, people were influenced and it marked a generation. 
um, millennials were certainly influenced by the Great Recession that we had in 2007, when many of them were becoming adults, starting jobs and, or record unemployment, these kind of things, 2007, 2008. My grandparents were influenced by the Great Depression, which is why they saved everything. Does anybody have a grandparent that saved everything, right? Because they didn't want to go through that thing again. And if they did, they were going to have enough to get through it. My grandfather was, a, I mean, he was not what you would call today, like they have shows called preppers, right? Where like people like, but he, he came by that naturally through like poverty and the Great Depression, right? Like, well, yeah, I'm going to have backup stuff because, you know, you never know when World War III is going to start kind of thing. But um, the millennials, though, as I am a member and I affectionately uh, refer to them as millennials, uh, there was a, a practice of millennials that was written about a couple years ago in a term that was coined, and again, I say this looking in the mirror, not pointing fingers, called slacktivism, right? This idea of slacktivism. And slacktivism just takes the word slack and adds it to activism, right? And slacktivism is the practice of supporting a political or social cause by means such as social media or online petitions characterized as involving very little effort or commitment. So, what is this? Well, when something happens, and maybe you've noticed this, uh, me and my generation are very good at being concerned. We are, and we're genuinely concerned with injustices. We just don't always know what to do with that concern. And so what happens then is we think we're doing something by maybe posting something on Twitter, changing our profile picture, doing something, and then when we look at, okay, what did the things we do, how did it impact the change that we wanted to see? And sociologists look at that and they say, well, very little change happened. Lots of concern was there. Well, very little change often came from it. Now, this isn't a bad thing. I think it's good to be aware. I, I don't begrudge anybody. I think we ought to be aware. But I also think it's good to say, is our activism actually producing the results we want to see, right? Is the things that we say we want to see in this world, are we actually building them in our actions? Do those two combine? Do they overlap? Are we just saying things and not actually doing the hard work that we want to build? Now, this is kind of an idea that also exists in the church, right? Christians are, are terrible at this. We say one thing and we do another thing. We hold other people to standards that we ourselves don't live to ourselves. Christianity requires a ton of faith and commitment. And, and hear me now, because this is one of the most important things you can hear about any faith in, in any church. You do not have to earn God's love. Your commitment is not to earn God's love. This is not like something that you need to Finally, you got to the end piece of putting this puzzle together and have earned God's love. God loves you regardless. God loves your neighbors regardless. God loves your enemies regardless. God exists and permeates love out of God's existence like the sun permeates heat and light. It goes forward. You are loved by God. You share in the image of God. But what takes faith and commitment is to reflect that love back onto this world, to not just say it, but to actually do it, to become not just receivers of God's grace, but to become givers 
of God's grace as well in our words and our actions. For years, theologians have argued about this divide between grace and works, right? Movements have divided over this idea of grace versus works. Uh, is it that we have to earn God's love, or is it that God loves us regardless? If God loves us regardless, what do we have to do for, you know, any works for? Well, the scriptures talk about this idea that you are actually saved by grace through faith for good works. There's a reason why we've been rescued out of the, the, the mundane of this world and entered into the mysterious. There's a reason. It's because you've been invited to build a better world, a, a more just world, a world that cares about love instead of hate, a world that shows mercy instead of judgment, a world that, that mourns together, that laments together, that cries together, but laughs together as well. I want you to hear, I was, we get more into this, never doubt God's love for you, ever. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've seen, regardless of what you've said, don't ever let a pastor, don't ever let a priest, don't ever let a theologian, don't ever let a parent, ever crack the thread of love that God has all around you. But also never forget that faith, hope, and love is hard to live out. Christianity is not a faith of slacktivism, as I and, you know, I can tend to want to do. Not you, you guys are better than me, but that I can tend to want to do. It is a faith of love and justice. So we're going to be in the book of James. Um, and if you have your Bibles, you can open up uh, to James 1. That's the first chapter. James is a book written by James. James, the brother of Jesus, is what we, who we believe probably wrote it. And James, the brother of Jesus, was one of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. If you remember right, if you go back to our series on Acts and different things we've talked about, the Apostle Paul gets in an argument in Galatians with the church in Jerusalem, and he names the so-called pillars of the church being who? Peter and James. And these, this is James, right? So we see the inner monologue or the inner tension in the scriptures with each other, and um, because James, though, writes beautifully about how faith and work, uh, works work together. James, even though, again, a pillar of the church, according to the Apostle Paul, had a harder time with Gentile inclusion. So again, always know, as we deal with faith and matters of faith, this idea of working out our faith can be difficult. James, verse, uh, James chapter 1, verse 13, let's go there. I want to talk about this idea of our hearts and thinking about what we receive and what we put back into the world, okay? I'm in this thing with my, my kids where they can't, and I'm trying to help them understand, they cannot control everything that happens to them, nor can you. My mother died when I was 15 years old. I could not control that. I wanted to. My mom was an alcoholic. I could not control that, though I believed I could. I can maybe participate in helping it get better or worse, but I cannot control it. My family is not always effusive with praise, right? I don't have to earn God's love, but sometimes I might have to earn my family's love. I can't control how they show praise. I can't control how they show love. 
I can't control that I went to the, the, the grocery store and somebody was mean to me. I cannot control what a governmental leader does. I can participate in helping a, a more just system be built, but I cannot control another person. I cannot control my spouse. I can't. My spouse can't control me. Emma can't control me. She would tell you that. I'm trying to teach my kids that you cannot control other things and you can't control always what happens to you. You can put yourself in positions that maybe, of course, this was a byproduct of a, a situation that you chose to be in. But you can only choose how you want to respond to the things that happen to you. I remember when I got diagnosed with um, an autoimmune disease called Graves' disease, and it's essentially the hormonal superhighway of your body through the thyroid is all messed up, right? It's just all goofed up and, you know, your, your, your chemicals in your body are taking control. And I, I remember my, my, my doctor said, hey, Nate, I just want you to know, we're going to treat this, all right? But typically those that have this disease experience a lot of highs and lows with anxiety, with depression, and Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they might need to go on an anxiety pill or a depression uh, medicine or something like that because the chemicals in your body are going to rage and, and it's going to be hard. Your body's going to try to manage them. We're going to, with medicine, try to manage them, but it's, it's going to be hard. Now, here's what I realize is I do not have, I, I cannot control how my body was messed up. I, I couldn't. It, it happened to me. You know, they don't know why. It just did. I, I, I had that issue. I, it was a thing either I was born with or something that happened in my body, my DNA. I don't know. I can control, though, how I deal with my anxiety that I get from the disease that I've inherited. So every morning I take an anxiety pill. Every morning. And I have for years and years after I got diagnosed. I can control that bit of thing in a whole situation that I can't control. And that's how I control it. That, that's how I participate in the system. So in this season and in this uh, uh, series, The Heart Matters, we're talking about looking at our own choices, looking at our own lives, and not necessarily saying, okay, um, what things can we not control and how do we manage those, but what things can we control and can we manage in our own life and what choices are we making to build a more just and, and, and uh, uh, loving uh, kingdom. So James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, James the apostle says 2,000 years ago to the early church, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so essentially what, um, what uh, James is getting at is, uh, don't pretend like you do this because God is tempting you to do this. You, you do certain things because you want to do them. Now, you might have a, a proclivity toward those things. There might be alcoholism in your family, and you might have some kind of 
predisposition to alcoholism. You might have, can't, my wife has cancer in her family. She might have predisposition towards cancer in her family. But ultimately, as James would say, and as any usually 12-step program works on, is you have to though look in your own life and say, what decisions am I making that leads up to this thing? How am I participating in something that might not be helping me get to the point that I want to get to? What choices am I making? There's been lots of choices that have made for me. There's been lots of things and people in my life, the wills of other people, my parents, my grandparents, my friends, that have impacted me. And I have to filter that out. I have to process all of that. But I also have choices that I have to make as well. And James says, okay, so don't pretend like though the things that you decide aren't your choices. You made those choices. You may have been influenced. You may have a proclivity towards doing those things. But ultimately, no one is, 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 is to be blamed or no one is, is at fault except you for doing those things. And that's hard. I have a friend that's a, an addict. I have many friends that are addicts. And typically when uh, I talk to addicts, I, try to, I, 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 I see a lot in you know, my mother in them. I see people that I love, uh, you know, family members in them. And I was talking to them once, and I said, hey, don't worry. You know, you've, had all, you've had a hard life. You've had all these things. And he stopped me and said, hey, you're being super empathetic, and that's really nice. But I drink because I want to drink. And the reason I'm not drinking is because I don't want to drink right now. I'm deciding not to drink. Every day I wake up and I decide not to drink. And one day I might drink. And it's not because you preach a bad sermon. It's not going to be because my wife was mean to me. It's going to be because I come to a situation where the world is chaotic and I decide to drink. And it really kind of rewired a little bit of some of the, my thinking because, again, I, I have tremendous compassion for addicts. Again, you, you know this about me. I have tremendous compassion. But what it showed me is I also have things in my own life I need to take control of. That yes, this person was unfair to me. Yes, this person wasn't nice to me. Yes, um, I, I've had these, these, these cards dealt to me. But ultimately, I'm going to decide what I want to do with the cards that I've been dealt. Sometimes it's a raw hand. Sometimes it's a great hand. Sometimes other people, I'm jealous of the hands that they've been given. But I have, a, 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 I have cards that I've been dealt, and I can only play them in ways that I want to choose. And James says, remember. You have desires. You have, you know, wants to do things. And then when your desires lead to choices that you've made and you live into that, it gives birth then to all kinds of bad things. It's one thing to say, I feel like doing this. It's a whole other thing to do it. It's one thing to say, I, I, I am so angry right now. It's a whole other thing to process that anger in physical actions. goes on to say, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of those um, sorry, first fruits of all that he created. Do not be deceived. Sometimes this uh, verse is used as a cudgel against people, right? 
you disagree with me, so you're being deceived. Um, when really, I, I just disagree with how you interpret the verse. I'm not being deceived. I just don't agree with how you, you are translating these kind of things. I think James is not talking about the deception that we think. He's talking about something different. Essentially, do not be fooled about what gives birth to death and what gives birth to new life. Do not be fooled about what is just and good and holy and righteous. Do not be good, fooled about um, what you do and how you choose to live your lives and whether or not it's participating in systems of love and justice or whether or not it's participating in and perpetuating broken systems in this world, that you're actually not being generous, you're being greedy. Don't be fooled. You're not being humble, you're being prideful. Don't be fooled, don't be deceived. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let's do a little study here, we got a couple minutes. How many people here um, and you can raise your hands at home as well. H how many people here would say you feel like you are quick to listen? That's part of a trait that you have. Some people are very good at listening. Some people aren't. If you're good at listening, it's okay. It's okay to own that. You, you should be able to own it. You know, one of the, I think, pursuits all of us should be is trying to figure out what our unconscious motivations are, who we really are. And it's okay to say I am more naturally gifted at something than other things. But you're quick to listen. Okay, how many people here would say you're... Because I think these are two different things, quick to listen, but how many people here are slow to speak, you think? Anybody? Okay. How many people here are, would rate, you know, say you're slow to become angry? I'm not, I'm only raising my hand as an example, not because I'm slow to become angry. Okay? Just, just as, okay, let's, let's have even more fun here. Let's say you came with somebody else. It's a sibling, maybe, or a friend, or a spouse, or a boyfriend, or girlfriend, or whatever. Let's rate them. Okay. How many people say that the people you're with are quick to listen? Okay. How many people here would say you're s the person you're with is slow to speak? Okay. How many people here would say that they're, and I'm, I'm not, I promise you, I won't look. Um, uh, how many people here would say you're slow to become angry, the people you're with? All right. I think in some regards, all of us have work to do in some of these areas. I don't think if people would ask, hey, um, I, I don't, I've got a lot of friends that don't go to church. They, they, they're not a part, they don't share my faith commitments. And if I ask them, hey, how would you describe faith or how would you describe the church? How would you describe Christians? I don't think these three primary things would be on the top of most people's list. Well, the Christians I know are very quick to listen. They're slow to speak and slow to become angry. I, I see a lot of anger sometimes. I see very quick tongues, myself included. And oftentimes I, I, I hear diagnoses, diagnoses for the world and what the problem is without actually listening. Without actually taking in and receiving what somebody is saying. What, what happens is it's kind of like ping pong. Somebody said it and you're automatically trying to retort back or you're, you're formulating your response back because you, you want to get your point in and you want, to, you want to win this thing. And so instead of actually listening to why your partner or why your sibling or why your friend or why your coworkers are mad, you, you want to explain 
why the thing that they said isn't really the thing that they're mad about or why they're wrong in feeling the way they do. You cannot control how someone else processes the world around them. You can only control your actions in response. Hear me now. You cannot control how your spouse receives love. You can only control your actions and how you want to show love. You cannot control how your children respond to love. You can only control how you're going to show them love. You cannot control how someone accepts your forgiveness. You can only work to prove that your, for, your, your, your sorrow and your, um, uh, you know, your, your broken heart over the thing is true. You can only ask for forgiveness. You can only show that your forgiveness is honest and earnest. You cannot force someone to receive that forgiveness. But you can say that clearly these people, this person doesn't think that I'm sincere and I can only control my actions so I will show them or do whatever I can to prove the sincerity of my position. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly, humbly accept the word implanted in you which can save you. This word implanted in you um, feels very matrixy to me. Um, that there's you know, this word, but this word lagos, we've talked about this before, is the thing behind the thing, right? The permeating thing that it, it goes throughout all of existence. This mysterious idea and, and uh, this mysterious thing that exists outside of existence. And this is what uh, the scripture is called Jesus, right? This is a, a very philosophical idea. What makes existence exist? What permeates all of existence? And uh, John, in the Gospel of John, says that the thing behind the thing is Christ. And so James says, okay, don't forget that the word, the logos, implanted in you is there. Accept it. But also, accept that the Lagos, and I would argue the image of that Lagos, the image of God, is in others as well. The people you love and the people you hate. The people that really drive you crazy and the people that you laugh with. The image of God is implanted in you. Accept that and accept that it's implanted in others as well. Words matter. Words matter. We use words to express ourselves, to convince and convict ourselves and others, to describe, name, blame, or label things, right? We, we use words to win arguments, to um, console. We, we use it to sell an idea or object, to lecture, to teach, to preach, to expound a point, to explain things into or out of existence, to persuade, to condole, to counsel, to announce, to denounce, to deceive, 
to ask someone to marry, to declare war and make peace, to sentence someone, to diagnose a condition, to analyze a problem, to deliberate or negotiate a deal. We cannot get along without words. And that doesn't mean just verbal words. That means just written words, um, communication cues. Words can alarm, harm, uplift, inspire, degrade, or silence someone. They can reveal our inner thoughts. The things that are in our hearts can come out of our mouths. Where would we be without words? But according to James, we cannot bring about God's righteousness through revengeful or evil speech, which only spreads destruction. Words matter. I don't get this idea that, um, that words are they're just tweets. They're just words. They're just, no, words matter. What you put into this world matters. It matters. How you say something matters. What you say to your kids matters. How you share love with others matters. How you deal with tense situation with others and use your words matters. Words matter. Well, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's not true. Names hurt me all the time. Names do hurt. Words hurt. Words can bring life to someone, encouragement. But it's funny, have you ever noticed that typically, for me anyway, I can get 10 encouraging things said and one negative thing, and the words that, and that negative comment or uh, email or tweet or whatever, just like a siren going off in my, confirming every vulnerable thought I have that I've, I don't matter. Now, there are far more things that I've received that are good, but that one bad thing I focus on. Why? Because words matter. We do tie our emotions to, to, to words. Why? Because the words that came out of your mouth come from somewhere. You think it, you feel it, you desire it. And so to receive that, I'm acknowledging that you must feel that way. And that could hurt. The implanted words. Have you ever noticed, why, why, why do many of us talk more than we listen? I'm getting better at listening. I'm, I'm trying to, anyway. I feel like I'm getting a little bit better, but as the youngest of uh, four kids, you know, I, I tried to talk as much as I could. Uh, and, and I was never bigger than my siblings, but sometimes I could talk my way out of being in trouble. And as much as I like to talk, what I really want to do is just connect, right? For a talkaholic, talking is asking for attention, for praise, for acceptance. But the reality is, is that when we listen, when we actually use our ears, it's a very vulnerable experience because, A, other people are sharing their, their, their secrets with you or they're sharing their heart with you, and you are no longer in control of the conversation. You are only receiving the words coming out of their mouth and their feelings and their emotions, and all you can do is receive it if you're truly listening. When I'm listening, I'm giving someone else my full attention, holding space for them. And it's a vulnerable place to be because you can't control what they're going to say. You can only control your response to it. And James wants us to know that words matter. Listening matters. 
opening up your heart to others and ears to others matter. Perhaps this implanted word, this idea, this lagas, one of the things we have to do is understand that in our words and, and in the things we say, that God is there and that you share in the image of God with others. It goes on to say, verse 22, as we finish this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Just do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. What is James getting at here? Listen, you've heard, you've received the word of God. It's implanted in you. Don't just receive it. Don't just listen to it. Don't just accept it. Go do what it says. Go reflect the love of God into the world around you. Go be gracious. Go be peaceful. Go be loving. Go be kind. Go be empathetic. But listen as you go. Why? Because actions speak louder than words. This is the, the, the height of hypocrisy when our words don't align with our actions, right? When our confessions and our convictions don't uh, match up. And when we say one thing and we do another thing, our kids, our spouse, our, our church, our, our, our communities, they, they call us and say, wait, wait, wait a second, you said this thing and did another thing. Why is that? Our actions speak louder than words. It's, it's why we get frustrated with some of our politicians that say one thing and do a whole nother thing. And you wonder, was that your intention the whole time? You talk matters. But your actions speak louder than your words. Actions add value to our words. They are in addition to our words. And they give our words, these things that we, we use and we say and we communicate with, they give our words life. They prove that what you say means something more than just sounds. You know, there are a million things I could tell you I'm outraged about. I get outraged fairly easily. Um, I get upset at things. But I'm learning that sometimes I have to do some introspection of why I'm getting upset. Because outrage for the sake of outrage is, is meaningless. And I know we live in a culture that outrage is very common and, and popular and can get you retweets and all these different things and people likes. And, but oftentimes it just stems from a hurt place for me. And I'm trying to learn to be slower to speak. Not because I don't have things to say, but by listening, I'm opening myself up to the connection to God and you and me and honoring the image of God in you and in me, recognizing that you and I are both implanted with the word of God. So in this series, we're talking about heart issues. We're talking about our motivations. We're talking about our desires. But know that your desires are worked out, and your, your motivations, and your beliefs, your opinions are worked out, not only in the things that you do, but also in the things that you say. So maybe in this Lent, we, we, try, to, we try to make sure that our actions and our words align, that the things that we say to be true align with the things that we do. And we don't do things that 
we don't necessarily believe are worth doing. So every week we come to a point where we have a time of repentance, and we do this on our Eucharist. If you receive the Eucharist on your way in, you can go get some now. It's, it's on the table out there. And if you want some at home, let us know. We'd be happy to drop some off for you. But um, we, we, we take this time because we know that we don't always live right. And I can't control your actions. I can't, church. I can't, and nor should I control your actions. I can only control my response to them. I cannot control my spouse. I cannot control my kids. I can only control my own response to them. I can only control my own actions. Things are going to happen to me that are good, some that are bad. I can only control my own health in response to these things and do what I can to best connect to God, to myself, to my neighbors. And look in the mirror. And so as we look in the mirror of our own life, we recognize two things. That what you see in the mirror is someone that God loves deeply, not because of what you've done, not because of what you've achieved, but for who you are. And because we are so loved, and we want to reflect that love to the world, we ask God for forgiveness of the areas where we've not reflected love well. Where we chose maybe the path of hate over love, or we chose the path of judgment over mercy, where we chose the path of divisiveness over unity. Where we decided that it was better to talk at someone to listen to than to listen to. And we pray that our actions and our words live more in harmony as we go out of this place day and every day forward. So wherever you're at, whether you're with us in person or here with us in, in, uh, in the church, will you join me by praying the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. 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 Amen.